it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 91. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to take a moment and answer some listener questions. We've got some great questions that we've had in our bank, and we wanted to take a few moments and answer those for you guys. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and read the first question? Yeah, sure. So this was a great question from Michael B. Um, We're going to split it up because there's kind of two different questions here. So let's tackle this first one. Hi, Andrew. I use your VTI on a weekly basis and love it. Good. Happy to hear. Um, Here in Canada, the banks are the most common stock to steadily rise and pay a decent dividend. But because of their debt to equity, they would never score well in the VTI. I know you aren't a big fan of financial institutions, but Dave is, and I could care less either way. <laughs> but based on trends in Canada, most banks are still selling at less than $100 a share, which based on their EPS increasing consistently and their dividends increasing regularly, I want to jump on the bandwagon. I know Braden mentioned the banks in both of his last interviews with you too. I just don't know which valuations I need to focus on with a company that makes the most money the higher their debt is. 13 of Canada's dividend aristocrats are financial institutions, nine of which are banks. I'm not sure if I'm chasing my tail here, trying to convince myself they are a good buy or not, but I do rely heavily on your VTI spreadsheet because it does take a lot of guesswork out of the quantitative information. I'd love to hear any insight if you have any. So anything jump out at you real quick, Dave, before we... Draw swords and, and start fighting each other. I guess. <laughs> no, I want to. I want to have you draw your sword first, and then I'll rebut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna make you go first. But I, all I want to say is, uh, first, when you mentioned a hundred dollars a share, and I know this. Uh, in the second question, he, he's talking about share price again. I think uh, as a podcast that's focused for beginners, it's important to always kind of try to tackle this misconception when you're first starting. I think uh, when people talk about stocks that are cheap, they tend to look at 
when they don't understand like how the stock market works, they look at how what the price looks like on the ticker, and and they think that that you know a hundred a dollar a stock that's like less than a hundred dollars is cheaper than a stock than that's a thousand dollars. But what we need to understand here is that there's a certain amount of shares, and so what really when we're talking about a stock that's cheap or expensive, we're talking about the market capitalization. So if you think of a ownership of a stock, um, each share represents ownership of a stock. If you have a hundred shares, it, it's kind of like that thing where um, they have this joke with with pizza. It's really funny. I wish I could think of the guy's name, but um, somebody in the audience listening is probably just has the name on the tip of their tongue. But there's this guy who's like making fun of his girlfriend because um, she's like ordering a pizza and asking something like she doesn't understand that whether you slice the pizza into six slices or eight slices, uh, you know, you're going to get the same thing. So it's, it's kind of very similar with, 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 uh, a stock, you know, the, the more slices and, and the more shares that there are, the, uh, the less that that share price will probably be. But what you need to do is you need to look at the whole pizza and that's going to tell you whether a stock's cheap or expensive. It's not how much we sliced it up. You know, you could slice it up a lot. You could slice it up a little. If you slice it up a little, you might have like a really much more expensive stock, kind of like what what Buffett did on purpose with Berkshire Hathaway, where he never splits his shares. So you have a stock that trades at over a hundred thousand dollars, and it's because they're 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 trying to attract those type of people who understand those things, who are in for the long term and and going to be buying and holding for a long time. So I think that's first off, um, when we talk about whether it's an ETF or a stock, let's make sure that because just because something's trading at under $100 a share doesn't mean that's something we should necessarily look for. Uh, I think the second part I will say is dividend aristocrats are great. To define those real quick, a dividend aristocrat is a stock that has been increasing its dividend consistently for I believe the definition for an aristocrat's twenty five years or more. Does that sound right? Yes, that's okay. correct. All right. Uh, there, there's no. There's. I don't think this word is in the dictionary. So it's it's more of like a thing that's generally accepted by by the community, if if you will call it that, but by people online. But <clears throat> you know, obviously, a good thing because. What you get when you have a, a stock and you own it and it and it grows its dividend every year, you're getting an income stream. And not only are you getting an income stream every single year, you're getting an income stream that grows. So, you know, find me a deal where you can put money in, get money out, and and then you know you put the money in once, and now you're getting money out every single year, and that's increasing. It, it can make your total wealth grow very very quickly. So it's generally a good idea to kind of look for these type of stocks. However, I don't think it should be something that's all in- exclusive. Um, if if you go back and, and you, know, you, you kind of have to, unfortunately, there's not a lot of tools where you where you can do this in a quick and easy way. But um, there's a lot of companies that maybe would have fallen on the dividend aristocrat list that kind of fall out over time. So I'll just say, Michael. Um, it's it's great that you know for Canadians right now it looks like the dividend aristocrats are the big majority of that make up the dividend aristocrats uh, are banks that that's cool but that's something that's in the past and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something for the future so I guess what I'll try to say with that is just because there's a lot of them now doesn't mean you necessarily need to buy it just because you want a dividend aristocrat. I, I, my ideal situation is obviously every stock I buy becomes a dividend aristocrat. I get that, that dividend reinvestment, that compounding from all of that. And it grows and grows and grows. If you look at my actual portfolio, it's kind of all over the map. Um, I obviously have the rule where I'm going to, Buy a stock that pays a dividend. I'm that's 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 a ground rule. I'm not backing down on that ever. But I also have some stocks um, that maybe the, their track records of growing their dividends is not as great as a dividend aristocrat. 
So sometimes the opportunity that pops up where I have a stock that's really cheap and looks like a great deal and that has a good history of growth happens to also have 25 years of, of dividend increases. And that's great. And so obviously I buy it. I feel happy about it. But you know, sometimes I have stocks where like one of my favorite ones right now only has, I think, five years track record of, of dividend growth. And I'm really happy to buy that and add to it. And, and it's had much longer history of, of earnings growth then it has dividend growth and that's fine too. So I think uh, it's important to understand dividend aristocrats are excellent, but it is kind of, you don't want to invest too much by looking in the rear view mirror. You want to look ahead. And so uh, just buying, like having a portfolio of just dividend aristocrats isn't going to guarantee that you're going to have a portfolio that gives you that kind of consecutive dividend growth every year. And a lot of them do fall off. And unfortunately, um, there's not a lot of research to back that up. But you can take it from me from somebody who's poked around, you know, in, in the archives of history that um, there are these companies that do fall out of dividend aristocrat status. So don't make that a sole uh, reasoning for wanting to buy a stock. And, and I'm not trying to say that you are. I think those are just some key things before we actually talk about the bank situation that um, we can get out of the way first and foremost. Very cool. That was a uh, good advice. So let's, let's draw swords, man. Let's talk about banks. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, okay. So Andrew is very much uh, on the not naughty bank uh, investing person. And we know why he's not a fan of debt. And neither am I. However, I do invest in banks and I've talked about that before. So some of the things that I think you can look for when you're talking about banks. Now, one of the reasons why I like investing in banks is they are a great source of dividends and they partly because they have to. Uh, that's one of the covenants that they have when they uh, form a bank is they have to use some of their money to give it back to their shareholders. And one of the way they do that is by paying a dividend. And typically they pay fairly decent dividends and pretty consistently. And they have over the years grown the dividends as well as they have done better and better as a bank, then you'll find that they will do better and better for you as an investor. Now, the Michael kind of references like he's looking for valuations and ideas of kind of how to start trying to look at banks. Well, one of the things you got to realize when you're thinking about a bank is when, so the bank has kind of a, a twofold way of making money. One is taking in deposits and then using those deposits to loan out to people to buy cars, homes, you know, whatever it is that they want, credit cards, all those kinds of things. So the, the, the money that there is being deposited. So when you and I deposit our paycheck into a bank, it's actually a liability, you know, in a sense in that we're going to want that money back. Now the bank is using the money also to try to loan out other people. So what kind of goes on and what can be really confusing and a little bit concerning for people is they get really focused on that liability part. Well, one of the ways that you can really dig into that and start to really kind of understand a little bit better how the bank is doing, there's several, I guess there's three ways that I look at this. So the first is when you're looking at a bank, whether it's a bank here in the United States or whether it's a bank in Canada, they're all going to kind of operate on the same premise. The first thing you're going to want to look at is what kind of bank is it? Is it a bank that is primarily working on loans? In other words, they're looking at borrowing money for people. So whether it's buying houses, buying cars, and so on. So those are more the traditional type of banks. So in the United States, for example, a, a bank that would a couple banks that would fall into that category would be uh, U.S. Bank and Wells Fargo. Both of those are very much in the traditional style of banking. They do dabble in other aspects of the banking world and the finance world, but their primary 
goal is to help people buy homes. Uh, their mortgage department is one of the largest in the United States, if not the largest. And they also do quite a bit of personal loans, i.e. car loans and so on. So that's one of the ways that Wells Fargo, for example, and U.S. Bank make their money. Then you look at somebody like J.P. Morgan, for example. Their model is different. Their model is based more on they work in more of the marketable securities realm. And so they're making their money by helping people buy and sell stocks and using leverage and all those kinds of fun things. So that's really where J.P. Morgan makes their money. And you can find all this in the balance sheet. When you look in the balance sheet, you can see what kind of different uh, loans or other items, how they do that. And so that's really where you're going to find those kinds of information. So once you have an idea of kind of what the bank does, that gives you a better idea of what next you really need to look at. The next thing you're going to want to think about is what kinds of loans do they have versus their liabilities? So when we talked about liabilities with the bank, the big liability is obviously the deposits. So it's a bit of a catch-22 because Every bank is trying to generate more deposits because that's the lifeblood of the bank is having money put into the bank so that they can use it to loan out so that they can make money. And the way that they make the money is they're looking at a spread on the credit that they can borrow. So without getting into too much technicalities, there's a spread between what they loan you versus what they borrow. So if they borrow money, at 3% and then they loan it to you at 3% or at 6%. Now they're making 3% on that loan. And so that's really where the bank is making their money. So when you're looking at this type of different bank and looking at liabilities, they want to generate deposits. So when I worked at Wells Fargo, that was our, that was our goal. Number one was to get people to open accounts with us conventionally. And honestly, that's the way I worked it. Not everybody at Wells Fargo did. That's why they're in trouble. But uh, that was the goal was to try to get people to open accounts and deposit their paychecks in there. So that's one of the things that you look at. But then you're also going to want to look at the loans versus the liabilities. And you're going to want to look at the percentage of what, what that is. Now, during the debt crisis that we had here in the United States and around the world, that number dropped almost five or 6% from normal banks. And so that's quite a bit. And what you're really looking for in a percentage like that is you're probably looking at, you know, anywhere from 75 to 80%, depending on the bank. And again, it's best when you're working with these things to go farther out to give you an idea of how the bank is done over the long term. One year is just not going to be good enough. You're going to want to do five to 10 years when you're looking at all these things. And this will help you get a better idea of what the bank, what it is that the bank does. Now, the other thing that you really want to dig into is is the bad loans. So when the banks got in trouble, that was a big part of it was that they were loaning money out to people that were not qualified to pay them back. And that has a twofold damage to a bank. When they, when somebody comes in and borrows money to buy a car and then they default on that loan, that hurt the, hurts the bank in two ways. One, it hurts the bank because it costs them money to try to recover the money from the said person that defaulted on the loan, whether it was, you know, legitimate or not. And that costs the bank money. The other aspect of it is it costs the bank money because that lose, they lose that money as a, a way of using it to borrow again. So if you buy a car for $10,000 and you default on 8,000 of it, the bank loses that $8,000 as well if they can't collect it. And so that's why bad loans are something you definitely want to keep an eye on. And again, that is something that you can track very easily. There's uh, there's different ways that you can go about doing that. Now, I want to go, I don't want to spend all the time talking about this, but if you really are interested more in the nitty gritty of this, I wrote a blog post uh, a few months ago talking about analyzing a balance sheet and looking very deeply into all these different ratios that can give you an idea of what's going on with a bank. And it can help you understand quite a bit more about what a bank does, 
how they do what they do and some ideas and some things you can keep an eye on if you're concerned about investing in a bank. And those are, I think once you start to really kind of dig into it, then I think also that will help you alleviate some of the fear and the uh, negativity that surround banks. You know, they are a necessary evil. Yes, I get it. But they all can be fantastic investments. I mean, you know, the person that Andrew and I look up to the most in the investing world, Warren Buffett, one of his largest investments is Wells Fargo. So I think that kind of says it all. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free, no insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash investing. That's HIMS.com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Yeah, you know this um, at the very beginning when I didn't want to be the first one to draw, I did a little bit, what's it called, like political grandstanding? 
Yes. Because uh, I, I know this is your area of expertise and it is not mine. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> and you, you did an excellent job of covering that. Obviously, I have my reasons for wanting to have a system that can kind of cover everything. And so because you have uh, these financial statements where that's a huge thing, um, like you said, the liabilities, uh, the way they do business, their complete business model is a completely different and unique than any other business model in the world. You know, like you said, uh, in a bank, they want to increase how many people they have banking with them. They want to increase the deposits. Uh, what other business, I guess, other than Tesla would want to increase their liabilities <laughs> as much as they could. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Tesla and Amazon other than that. Um, yeah, normal, <laughs> normal businesses that want to grow. So, yeah, I think it's it's very fair to say that when you're looking at a bank, um, it's something that's completely a unique, different situation. Their accounting's unique, um, and so did you. In that blog post, did you put like you mentioned the ratios? Because uh, you know the the big thing here is the the difference in debt to equity. So yep. did, did you put like standard percentages on what kind of let's say? Um, Long-term debt, I think that's something you would probably look at, but you would not relate it to total shareholders' equity, but you would instead relate it to a different metric. So are there like ranges of ratios where it's like reasonably acceptable uh, for yeah. that? Yeah, there's, there's definitely, yeah, there's, there is definitely uh, ranges and I do list some of those in there. Uh, you know, the things you really want to look at as far as more conventional metrics um, our uh, book value, book uh, book value per share is a very big one in the banking world. Uh, return on equity and return on assets. Return on assets is a very big one uh, because that gives you a really good idea of what the bank is doing with the assets that they have, and that has a lot to do with the uh, with the analysis that the Fed does uh, every year. Um, every bank goes through a stress test, and, and are you are you familiar with what that is? Hey, you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. So what they do is <laughs> um, a stress test is basically what they do is they look at the bank's balance sheets and they analyze them in regards to if there was the worst possible financial crisis to ever hit. And how would the bank survive? And every bank has liquidity that they have to have on hand. So if there is a quote unquote rush on the bank for all of us to take our money out, what would be, would you and I be able to get it? And in essence, there, there's certainly a lot more technicality and there's a lot more gobbledygook that goes into this, but just as a, as a generality, that's what they do. And they do, the Fed does this every year. And this is a law that was enacted after the financial crisis that all banks have to meet this liquidity minimum. And if they do not, then they are not allowed to buy back shares, increase their earnings per or increase their dividends. And so it's a big deal for the banks to be able to uh, pass these tests. And uh, last year they did it and they base it not just like on a one year cycle they look at like a five or six year cycle so if they you know if we're going through this horrible crisis in the world then how would wells fargo stand up for five years or jp morgan or u.s bank or bank of america any of those you know any of these big banks they do it for all banks it's not just the big the big boys they do it for uh, you know the, your local banks too and I, i'm happy to say that all the big banks in the united states have passed uh, the last six or seven years uh, some of the smaller banks have not done as well, and that's you know that's hurt them for sure. But it's it's another way of, I guess, the government trying to reassure us that you know these banks are doing better and they're managing things smarter than they were before. I'm not saying that there's not dishonesty out there or there's not greed out there, but these stress tests are another way that they're again they're done annually, and they're a great way of giving us a guideline of what's really going on with the bank. Do you know if, do you know if that um, happens to be like 
because you mentioned the Fed. So is that all U.S.? Is that global or? It's all U.S. It's just U.S. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Because I think that's one of the big fears too is is this idea of a bank run because in a hypothetical sense if everybody ran and wanted their deposits and those are real liabilities that you have to mm-hmm. cover for but you, know, right. you have the fdic which i don't know what's the case in canada if if they have something similar to that but that that changes the game a lot too when it comes to these investments because when oh, you have yes. the fdic and then now you're talking about these stress tests well as long as the system doesn't collapse the fed's making sure that the system as a whole is going to survive because they have these stress tests that said, well, as a group, we're all going to collectively survive, even if there was a Armageddon type uh, bank run. I don't right. know how it is with Canada, so maybe we don't know that answer. Yeah, and I don't. I don't know the answer. I, I would. I would think that you know, if you want to buy Canadian bank stocks, that's something you should investigate. Yeah, for sure. I I know that. Uh... Uh, Braden has mentioned banks several times and uh, the guys from uh, sure dividend have talked about uh, the banks quite a bit as well. And I know the banks are more highly regarded in Canada than they are in the United States. Okay, cool. Good to know that. That was some really great stuff. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. All right. So the second part of the question on a side note, as you're aware, marijuana related stocks are all the talk in Canada these days. And I'm sure in the U.S. as well. And I know you won't buy an IPO, so I didn't jump in at any point. But after watching some of these companies fluctuate like crazy, trying to build better facilities and spending money up front, I went in early, but there are there are so many options. I went in early, sorry, but there are so many options. What are your thoughts on a weed stock ETF? There is one in the Toronto Stock Exchange, which has all the heavy contenders with international exposure, as well as it's called uh, HMMJ. To and it trades for less than twenty dollars per share. Last I checked, from your perspective, is it still too early to try and dip a toe in the industry? Andrew, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I so let's talk about this ETF that um, that was brought up. It's called again ticker HMMJ.to. So what I did, and this is something you can kind of take and use anytime you want to look at any ETF. Uh, I just took that ticker, uh, put it into Google, and I found the page that has basically the prospectus. Um, So they have any ETF or mutual fund will generally have a page online where you can find out everything about it. And so I think it's a lot of stuff to kind of take in, but if you can pinpoint where you need to go, you can get a good sense of, of what's going on with these ETFs or these mutual funds. So for this one, the HMMJ, uh, the name of it's Horizons Marijuana Life Sciences Index ETF. So they have a product sheet prospectus. What I looked for was uh, the part where uh, you can look at holdings. That's the generally uh, a place where you can find, you get a good idea of, of what's in that ETF. So when I look at holdings, this is telling me what stocks they hold and what the weight is. So how much of the CTF is comprised of, of this stock and that stock. And so some na- some names here are stuff you hear on the news all the time. You have Canopy Growth Corporation, Aurora Cannabis, Cronus Group. Uh, I scroll down, I see Tilray. Tilray is pretty high. That's like 7%. So Canopy, 12% weight. Aurora, 11%. Cronus, 11%. These are all uh, pretty heavily weighted towards these single stocks. So uh, when you think of ETFs, the stereotype on ETFs is that you know they're they're made up of large groups of of stocks. You know, you talk about SPY; that's one of the most popular ETFs. It just buys the complete S and P five hundred index, all five hundred stocks. So each stock in there, I mean, the weightings are less than a percent for a lot of them, most of them. So now we're we're talking about a situation with with this ETF where that's not the case at all, and and this is almost like a very concentrated portfolio of a select few stocks. And is that because there's only a certain amount of uh, big players in the industry? Uh, maybe, possibly, likely, but whatever the case may be, that's the reality, and that's something I think we need to differentiate right off the bat. That when you think of ETF, that's kind of the stereotype, but when we're looking at this one and probably a lot of different kind of sector ETFs, 
you have this characteristic. And so what you're going to get, because this is the way it's comprised, this is the way it's made up. So how that's going to affect the total kind of movements in the charts is it's going to be different than your standard ETF too. So keep that in mind. Just because we have an ETF doesn't mean we're going to be necessarily subject to less volatility um, than any of these Canadian um, marijuana stocks. So I, I pulled up some information on some of these and um, thought it'd be useful to talk about them and maybe share some of my thoughts. So canopy growth is is the biggest component of this ETF. I looked at some of their financials and I didn't dive into the to the annual reports, but I'm just kind of pulling out some highlights that we can talk about real quickly. So canopy growth doesn't report a PE ratio. It has a negative earnings per share. So that's that's something that longtime listeners know. Um, puts up big red flags for me right off the bat. And on the PB price to book perspective, we're, we're talking about a stock where it's uh, eight times price to book. Compare it to the average, which is around two. So you're talking about um, four times more expensive from a balance sheet perspective. That's That's quite a bit. It makes up the biggest uh, component of this uh, of this ETF. The next one's Aurora Cannabis. This one's actually the most reasonable stock um, out of the whole group as far as what I saw from a financial perspective. They actually do turn a profit. They have a reasonable price-to-book ratio around two. Um, the PE's still kind of high at 33, but it's still reasonable. Uh, obviously, it's a situation I would not invest in any of these, again, because they're not paying any dividends. So long-time listeners, again, know my stance on that. But um, this one making up 11% doesn't look terrible, just surface level, just from a couple of these metrics. But then I, I go into another one like Cronus. This one has been losing money for a while. Uh, it looks like their only positive year was 2015. Uh, and ever since then... Oh, okay. No, they did 2017, their most recent year, they did make money. Um, but again, I think with Cronus, what was it? Uh, a price to book of 20, that's that's crazy. So we're looking at a stock where you're, you're really paying for whatever growth that you perceive is going to happen in the future. Uh, the big problem with these and any stock or ETF in, a, in an emerging, emerging industry, which essentially that's what the question was about, was you know, is it too early to get in? You just have so much uncertainty. And this is the case, whether we're talking about one stock or a whole industry. And it's the same case, whether I'm talking about marijuana or if, or if we're talking about biotech or if we're talking about, you know, social media or, you know, fit, you know, plug in your flavor of the day for whatever the new stock is. What you have is just kind of a, a difference of philosophy and, and basic kind of mindset on how are you going to make investments and how are you going to continue to do so? Because, you know, there's always going to be something, some new flavor of the week. And and you can certainly drive yourself insane. And I see it. So I'm a part of several Facebook groups. I see this. It's starting to become like a depressing kind of a observation. But you'll have these, these people, they'll, they'll get, you know, Re, you know, it's it's very very justifiable because the most exciting part of investing is generally these stocks that are the high growers. They're, they're the brand new to the industry. They're the ones that are perceived to be the biggest industry kind of disruptors. And so, along with all the hype and the attention, becomes really high stock prices, very high valuations. Everything that we constantly pound the table that you should avoid: avoid, avoid, avoid. Be boring, be boring, be reasonable. Do not buy into the hype. You know, it's it's hard to 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 take something that's exciting, and then kind of take a reasonable approach that that you know is going to only make you ten to twelve, you know, maybe fifteen percent a year if you're lucky. When you see stocks that go up a hundred percent in a day, you know, I get it. It's it's really hard. But what you what you see over and over again in these Facebook groups are these people who, you know, they'll make a trade or two, and then they'll get lucky, and and they'll make let's say fifty percent gain in a very short time. And that's like the absolute worst thing that could happen to them because now they have this sense that they actually know what's going on where 
in reality, it's it's the wild wild west out there with a lot of these new stocks that are that are high growers. It, it's 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 a way of investing where you're you're basically looking at a crapshoot, and because there's so much potential, there's also so much potential for failure. And you see this in the business world in general. You know, there's a reason why the investors that are successful in, in investing in startups and doing the seed capital and the angel investing, they invest in a much different way than somebody like Warren Buffett does. Warren Buffett, you know, t- he, he doesn't need to guess about what's going to be hot next. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't need to know what's trendy now. All he needs to know is, is, you know, I understand balance sheets. I've seen these, big businesses that have been consistent. Yeah, I've been kind of not as exciting, but you know, they're consistent. They're giving me profits. I'm getting income and I'm building my wealth over time, slowly, consistently, reliably, not, you know, like I see in these Facebook groups where either they'll A, lose all their money <laughs> very, very quickly and then get completely disenfranchised by the whole thing and give up. B, you know, find some success, start telling people how to do it. And then, you know, feel like they have this, like they're the special person who has this intuition that's better than everybody else. And they know exactly which stocks and which companies and which businesses are going to be the ones to change the world. You know, to pick, to think you could pick out of a group of five or 10, which one's going to survive out of that chaos and and end up becoming a, a mature consistent cash flowing company it's there's a lot of hubris there but you know they might come in they might find some success and then become frustrated because as you get into these stocks that are crazy volatile crazy exciting at this as fast as it goes is you know as easy as it comes is as easy as it goes so you'll have these huge staggering losses that are just so horrific that a lot of these people again they might complain and, and bitch about it on their Facebook group and then you never see them again. And they just come and go and they come and go and they don't spend the time to to try to get educated and try to really learn how, how to invest in the right way. So I'm, I'm not saying that, Michael, asking this, that, that you're that person because you're obviously asking these very insightful questions. You're listening to the podcast. You're following along. But that those are those are huge reasons to just not even want to to get into any sort of industry whether whether it's weed stocks today or whatever that flavor of the week is in 2020 2021 there's always going to be one and instead of trying to drive yourself crazy on you know is it too early to get in am i going to be too late you know uh when's going to be the right time well which one of these is going to be the one that survives you know (laughs) something like marijuana you have you have huge tobacco corporations who have it's it's not even like not common knowledge that that there's a lot of politics that goes on with these huge with cigarettes with the way that you know all these health stuff that they got to deal with and it's just an unbelievable amount of uncertainty with how and where the industry is going to go you compare that to even just maybe buying into a cigarette company itself where you can look at their balance sheet and you look at the size of this company and you understand when you look at that industry, you know, you got camel, you got Marlboro, um, you got maybe Newports and, and you have just these brands that just over and over and over again are being bought by pe- by people, the same people. It's like a recurring revenue in a way that this brand loyalty with, with the, with a lot of these cigarettes. And, and it's something that's a lot more certain and stable and has a long, a lot longer track record than, than something like the marijuana stocks. You have, again, I, I go back to the, the data sheets on some of these. You have Canopy Growth, um, market cap of $14 billion. Uh, Aurora is at 6.92. Cronus is, uh, it's not showing up here real quick, 3, 3.5. So these are very, like, very, very small kind of mid cap. Um, small cap, I guess, depending on how you want to define them, but just, it's a small industry. They're small, very baby companies. They're very much so in their growth stages. And, and you just don't know which ones are going to separate themselves as the big industry leaders. If you, if you compare that to some other mature industries, you have 
<clears throat> like in fast food, you have McDonald's, soft drinks, you have Pepsi and Coke and Dr. Pepper. Even even in the, the new tech now, right? You have Facebook and Google and uh, I'm sure I'm missing one more. But you'll tend to see this this small this it, it tends to consolidate in a, in a really smaller group, and so I think it's been shown over and over again in with the books that you can read with the way that a lot of these successful investors talk and just common sense really and just being observant with how industry kind of functions and how it goes it's 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 a lot easier to get yourself and become the type of investor who doesn't need to guess on timing, who doesn't need to guess on which one's going to be right, or even if this industry is going to get taken out by the government tomorrow, or if it's going to explode into something like we've never even seen. You could just choose not to play and instead buy into industries that are very established and, and don't have these huge headwinds in the future where where you know it's uncertain that that these industries will will continue. But you know, just buy into that and buy into the consistency and, and buy into the idea that I'm just going to take income and I'm going to grow it over time and I'm not going to worry about uh, being the smartest person in the room. I think if you talk to, if you talk to, like as if I talk to Buffett, but if you if you hear Buffett and hear him talk over and over again about what it takes to, to do well in the stock market, he says over and over again, it's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about being rational and being reasonably smart where you can know that I'm going to, I'm going to be trying to pursue this in a consistent, reliable kind of safe way that, that I can do, I can do this over and over again and not have to worry about being right all the time. So that's really why we preach that you, you look at an ETF like this and it's very, very concentrated. It's huge bets on like these select, five to 10 companies here that make up a vast majority of the index. So I perceive a lot of volatility with an investment like this ETF. I think you got a lot of the risks that come with weed stocks. And just because it's in in an ETF does not mitigate a lot of these risks. Uh, For that reason, for all the reasons, really, um, the industry it's in, the way it's weighted, and the uncertainty surrounding you know which which stock kind of takes over i mean even you know a stock that's so lowly weighted if if it ended up being the one that to kind of take over the industry uh and then you know you had like let's say what let's say the stock here at the bottom green organic and we're just making a hypothetical situation let's say green organic dutchman holdings at two percent weight ended up being the the complete dominator of this industry. And that was the one that eventually became the stock that was the dominant, reliable, consistent income streams, cash flow machine, what we want to see in a good investment. So that means all the other ones above it, Canopy, Aurora, Kronos, G- GW. These are all stocks that are probably going to crash, especially when you're talking about valuations of 10 times book, eight times book, 20 times book. There's so much hype priced into these stocks. So yeah, you have one big winner in this ETF and and cool, the ETF included it. But when you add up all the other losses that you get, it'll inevitably happen if this group of stocks, you know, if, if one comes out and the others don't survive, huge, huge losses, huge losses. And And so the big wins by saying that if Green Organic was the one to win, and this ETF held two percent of it. Uh, you'd have huge losses that would that would really take a lot of the profits out of out of that winner. You compare that to maybe a more boring strategy like Minor Days, where we're we're taking a group of five stocks. Maybe I'm taking a one that's big on uh, something boring like chicken. Maybe I have another one that's big on boring like uh, networking in in the tech space. Maybe I have another one that's big and boring because it. Uh, it's so big and boring, but it has one of the most popular brands in the world, you know, but it's not growing anymore. It's been around for decades. So people don't care about it in the stock market anymore. You know, I, I don't have those same risks that somebody who would buy an ETF with with uh, all of these huge valuations. The, the chances of a stock that is so expensively priced 
crashing versus one one of my you know pick any in my portfolio that's already at a reasonable valuation okay well when it's when it's low how much lower can it go you know what i mean that's that's kind of the logic that you need to think about when you're approaching valuations uh yeah that's a skyscraper valuation <laughs> when that thing falls it's going to fall hard and and it's not speculation you, we, you see it all the time and that's why unfortunately a lot of beginning investors they really get burned and they don't come back and, and it's a shame and we'll keep talking until our mouths fall off and, and try to get people to kind of turn around on that but unfortunately some people just have to touch the stove i think that's that's something that's inevitable i think it's pretty clear where I stand on this and hopefully when it comes to this industry or any other growth industry that you're really taking heed and understanding what you're getting yourself into because that's what happens when you buy into really expensive valuations, really expensive uh, high price to book ratios. There's, there's a ton of risks. And so I would be very, 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 very careful. Going to wrap up our conversation. Enjoyed the thoughts that Andrew and I had. It was a lot of fun talking about this question. Uh, took that question and really kind of dove deep into it. So I hope you guys got some great information out of that. And if you have any questions and other thoughts, please let us know. We love talking about this stuff. Love answering your questions. So any way we can help, we're here to help. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys have a great week. Go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, and we'll talk to you next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply